to make extremely difficult and soul-searching decisions. We talking about Hello, all you listener out there. Uh, this is Mike Sielski from the Philadelphia Inquirer, welcoming you once again to not another Philly sports talk show. David Murphy is not in the office this week to participate in this podcast. He's down in beautiful, sunny Clearwater, Florida, hanging out with all those anonymous Philadelphia Phillies. We are joined this week, as usual, by Jonathan Tannenwald, our intrepid producer. Hello there. And David uh, Murphy has not been banned from the show, by the way. He will be back at some point. Yeah, so we can talk about uh, quarterbacks and politics and all that good stuff. Uh, joining us this week, actually, is uh, the very fine Eagles writer, for the Daily News, Les Bowen. Les, say hello to everyone. Hello to everyone. <laughs> Good to have you here. Les and I just finished up um, recording the broad view. For those of you who are faithful fans of our little video tete-a-tetes on philly.com. So uh, he's fired up and ready to go um, to discuss all sorts of things. And, uh, and we want to begin, I think, with the question that has kind of dominated sports discussion in the town for a while here now, which is... Something that I'm, I know I'm starting to get a little tired of, and I'm sure Les is tired of writing about it and discussing it. But it's it's an interesting question nonetheless, which is Sam Bradford's future with the Eagles. And and Les, you wrote earlier this week that you don't anticipate the Eagles will franchise put the franchise tag right on Sam. Play general manager for a second, okay? You are Howie Roseman Bowen. Uh, you've just Chip Kelly's been fired. The roster is what it is. They've extended Lane Johnson. They've extended Zach Ertz. The owner, Jeffrey Lurie, has said this is a team that can win now with the right coach and maybe a few improvements in talent along the way. Now, my general manager, Mr. Roseman Bowen, we need a quarterback. What do we do? Well, I'm operating at a disadvantage here, Mike, in that my answer would be Sam Bradford, and I would franchise Sam Bradford. Uh, I think there is a feeling in the NFL that $20 million is a huge bite of your cap, although the cap is going to be $155 million this year, and I'm not sure that the Eagles can't afford $20 million out of it uh, at the most important position on the field. But that seems to be the feeling. I have to think there is a longer game with Bradford going on here wherein perhaps they don't think that the bidding will get to where some people think it will, that teams like Houston that are presumed to be ready to throw all kinds of money at Sam Bradford maybe aren't, and, and that they can get Sam Bradford for a reasonable price. If that is not their plan, then I'm a little bit at a loss. They're certainly not going to start Mark Sanchez next season. I'll guarantee that right now people talk just pulled chase daniel's name out of a hat yeah, I, th- there's been no real indication that he is in any way in the eagles plans that the only connection is that he played in kansas city as a backup and doug peterson comes from kansas city and chase daniel can be a free agent in march well you know, that doesn't do a whole lot for me. Chase Daniel is 30 years old. He's never done a darn thing. Um, <laughs> he would be pretty much Doug Peterson 
Yeah. You know, in 1999 without Donovan McNabb, which right. is kind of not what you're looking Th- for. That's that's the mystifying part of the entire discussion about the Eagles quarterback situation to me. And I've written about this in the past, and, and we just kind of got done discussing it in a way on the broad view, which is that people view the position, generally speaking, in the NFL, I feel like, and I think particularly in Philadelphia, for a reason I'll mention in a second, from kind of a zero-sum perspective, wherein you have a quarterback, and if you do anything to kind of um, buttress the position, draft somebody else, sign somebody else, whatever the case may be, that that's regarded as somehow undermining him. And I think part of the reason that is, is because we're still kind of fixated on the Donovan McNabb era mm-hmm. a little bit. And Donovan was very sensitive to that sort of thing. He you know, certainly when, was. You know, yeah. when they drafted Kevin Cobb, for instance, in 2007, um, he did not, Donovan did not take well to the idea. I think it was 2007. I forget. It was, it was yeah. yes. Did not take well to the idea that, that Cobb was the prospective next starting quarterback for the Eagles. Um, he didn't like that idea. He didn't even like thinking about that. Um, you know, maybe part of that was because he didn't think Cobb could play, whatever the case may be. But that, to me, is the wrong way to look at the position entirely. If you look at the history of the league, not just over the last 15, 20 years, like go back 30, 40 years, the successful franchises and organizations, they stockpile quarterbacks. Oh, yeah. yeah. They, they draft one every year, every other year. They, they have a ton of them so that they, because they're so precious and so valuable, you develop them and you trade them or you have them in case your starter goes down. So the idea that the Eagles would just part with Sam Bradford because he was mostly lousy for the first half of the season and they went 7-9 and nine last season and then they're just going to find somebody else either in the draft or as a stopgap to replace him and everything will be fine seems to me exactly the wrong way to think about the position. Yeah, I agree. I think you could certainly bring back Sam Bradford and draft a quarterback 13th overall in a year when everybody says none of the quarterbacks that are uh, first-round worthy right. are immediate starters. It right. makes all kinds of sense to me, but yeah, or- I, I really think a lot of the anti-Bradford sentiment it's been I've gotten into long engaged you know engagements in on Twitter with this condolences for having to do that by the way. <laughs> yeah and it's it's very frustrating because you're not generally speaking you're not dealing with people who have any grasp of quarterbacking whatsoever what they have a grasp of is that the Eagles had a disappointing season right and they didn't make the playoffs and Sam Bradford was the quarterback right and that's to them that's all you need to know about Sam Bradford. I think that's ridiculous. I, I think that's yeah. a really silly and defeating way you could look at any position on the field. Maybe Fletcher Cox isn't any good because the Eagles right. didn't make the playoffs. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I don't never mind the fact, not to interrupt you, but never mind the fact that the Eagles were 7-7 seven and seven in the games Bradford started and were 7-6 seven seven and and six six in, in the games, games he started, started and finished. finished yes. you know? and, and, they were, and they were ahead in the game they lost that he started. Right. When he got hurt and, and yeah. Sanchez came in against Miami. So anyway. Yeah. So. It, you know, it just it makes no sense. It's people reacting, I think, a little bit to his personality, a little bit to, I think, a pretty well-founded perception that although Bradford might be willing to play here, that he's not, you know. Dying to play Chaining here. himself yeah. to the uh, That's what I was gonna ask. front of the NovaCare Center <laughs> and refusing to leave. That's what I was going to ask. I know it doesn't really matter at the end of the day whether he wants to be here or not. 
Because if the Eagles want him does, here, they'll, they'll, you know. if the, the Eagles want him here, he'll be here. Yeah. But does he want to be here? I don't know. You know, I, and I wonder. You know, I don't know him well enough to know whether he just wants the money that that you know. Right. If, if the Eagles pay him enough, he'll stay and he'll be happy. Um, but I do know this, I, and I, I think you touched on something very prescient, Les, which is that in Philadelphia, fans like athletes excessively. For those, for their athletes' desire to want to be here, yes. You like, we. I think I've had. This, I don't know if we've discussed this on the podcast, but I know I've discussed it with Murph. Like, Cliff Lee had some kind of was held in some kind of higher esteem for choosing to sign with the Phillies in 2010 and spurning the Yankees and the Texas Rangers and everybody else. And it was a higher esteem in some people's minds than Cole Hamels, right. who literally was the reason, the primary reason that the franchise won its first World Series since 1980. You know, th- there was always this sense of like, yeah, but Cliff wanted us. He yeah. likes us. Like, he, yeah. like he's Sally Field at the Oscars. I think you know? Jim Tomei had benefited from the right. same uh, perception. You know, and, and I do think that that plays into this, that, that you're right. It's, it's part of it is... The Eagles went seven and nine. Sam Bradford was the quarterback. Get him the hell out of here because he went seven and nine. But the other part of it is, if Bradford, you know, had been more open in his personality, if he had been a la Connor Barwin or Jason Kelsey or Malcolm Jenkins, right. kind of been oh, out absolutely. there, yeah, people would feel differently. And about in it. fact, he really fumbled this first when we first mentioned the possibility of coming back to him uh, late in the season. He really stiff-armed it, yeah. You know, which did not go over well at all. Now later, he either he or his agent realized that wasn't the way to go, and uh, said nicer things. But I think there's, you know, if I'm Sam Bradford, I've been here one year. That one year was kind of a disaster. The fans didn't really embrace me. If the Houston Texans, who are in the playoffs and have J.J. Watt and DeAndre Hopkins, if they want to give me twenty million dollars a year to go play in Houston. I, yeah, I'd rather be there than here. Yeah, I probably would. <laughs> uh, you know, but I don't think Philadelphians take well to that sort of thing. Even if uh, somehow he were to end up staying, if they thought he wanted to leave, that would be a big deal. Yeah, he'd be damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. If he decided to leave, he'd get ripped by people here for not wanting to stay, which is yeah. crazy because there are so many people out there saying they don't want him to be here in the first right. place. But what's interesting, and, and again, we discussed this on the video in the Broadview, there don't seem to be many voices within the Eagles locker room who are saying, get Sam Bradford the hell out of here. They're saying, bring this guy back. We need him here. Jason Kelsey, Zach Ertz, Jordan Matthews, Malcolm Jenkins. You know, the, the, the loudest voices, the most esteemed voices really in the locker room seem to be saying, we want Sam Bradford here. We believe in him. How much in your mind, how much weight does that carry in the Eagles thinking about whether to bring him back on a long-term basis or not? And sh- how much weight should it carry? That's a hell of a thing, Mike, because it sure looks like, as you have pointed out in print, that what the players thought uh, mattered a great deal to Jeffrey Lurie in the firing of Chip Kelly, but I'm not sure it means a whole lot to him in this instance (laughs) when it comes to money. Um, You're right. uh, If there is a group that is committed to having Sam Bradford back, it's the group in the locker room. I think if you want to take the opposite view, you can point out that some of the same people felt the same way about Nick Foles a year yeah. ago. Yeah. You always kind of like what you're used to or 
you know, what you know versus the unknown. But I do think it's a little more pronounced with Bradford. It's it's a little less just sort of general lip service, mm-hmm. uh, a boilerplate, you know, endorsement. I do think that uh, the key offensive players on this team really think they have something in Sam Bradford. And uh, it's going to be fascinating to me if the Eagles do part with him, how they bridge that gap, how they make everybody really uh, excited about doing something else. Hey, John. Um, I find it interesting that you brought up the false point about the guys uh, sort of wanting Foles to be here and saying some of the same things, if not to the same degree. I can understand, um, you know, when you're judging a wide receiver or a kicker or a free safety or something like somebody like that, as to, you know, trying to figure out what the players are saying about it and whether that matters. But if it's the quarterback and it's the position that really brings everybody together and all of the veteran leadership guys on the team are saying, bring the guy back, I'd like to think that ought to count for something. Yeah, you would think. And and the example I've, I've gone back to um, is the transition that the Eagles made in, ni- in 1998 to 1999 from the Ray Rhodes era into the Andy Reid and Donovan McNabb era. You know, in 98, they go 3-13, and and the quarterback position is just hot garbage for them that year. It's Bobby Hoying, it's Rodney Pete, it's Coy Detmer, all due respect to those guys. They weren't going to win any games with those guys as their quarterback. But you had the beginnings of excellence on defense. You had some pieces there, Brian Dawkins, Troy Vincent, Bobby Taylor. They had drafted Jeremiah Trotter in 1998, and he was going to move into the starting lineup in 1999. You, you, You get Hugh Douglas uh, people like that. So there, there was something cooking on defense. And in 99, they, of course, draft McNabb and go back and talk to those guys. Talk to Vincent, talk to Taylor and Dawkins. They were buoyed by the fact that they the organization finally had a guy who was as talented at, on offense as the guys on defense were. We can get somewhere with this guy. It's It's not... Bobby Hoying. It's not somebody who's going to throw the ball to the other team all the time. He's a spectacular athlete. He's going to master the offense. But the reason you can have that and you could make that transition the way they made it, bringing in Peterson to kind of keep the seat warm for eight, for eight or nine weeks before you turn things over to McNabb, is because they had been so bad at the position the year before. You couldn't. There was no way they were going to regress from right. De- from right. Coy Detmer and Bobby Hoying and Rodney Pete. That is not the situation now. They could get a... I'm not saying Sam Bradford is a Hall of Famer. I'm not even saying he's a top 10 quarterback in the NFL at this point. But you could get a hell of a lot worse than Sam Bradford if you miss on a draft pick or... If you play Mark Sanchez. Yeah, or if you play Mark Sanchez. And so that's the risk I think you run is that if you don't bring Bradford back and keep the position at that level or somehow draft somebody who's or find somebody who's going to be better than him... Where are you then? You've completely lost the locker room at that point. Yeah, that's a, and that's a very real concern. There are a lot of guys here who are in mid-career, who are not just starting out, who don't want to waste a year of their lives, you know, risking injury, mm-hmm. uh, all kinds of things. You know, while the Eagles figure out the quarterback position, that's, that's not tenable. I, I, I'm really fascinated, as I said before, about – how they're going to address this if Sam Bradford is not the plan because I think they've got a lot of selling to do to the public and to the players, right? uh, right. whatever they do uh, going forward. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, too, because you hear often, 
And, you know, I hear from the, from many of the same people you do on Twitter. And there is, there's even some back and forth amongst those of us who cover the Eagles on a day-to-day basis about this question about how good is Bradford really, what should the Eagles commit to him, that sort of thing. And one of the arguments you hear, and I'm sh- I hear, and I'm sure you hear it too, is that, well, you know, $20 million is so expensive to pay for a quarterback. And there are teams out there, for instance, the Seattle Seahawks, that have proven to be successful um, by not paying their quarterback a whole hell of a lot. And that shows that you can do it. You know, if, you, if you're able to, to find Russell Wilson and pay him less than a million dollars a year on his rookie contract, then you have more money to spread throughout the team and you can get better everywhere else, which I find to be a really specious argument. For one thing, you've got to have a player personnel department good enough to find those caliber of guys at multiple positions. You've got to be able to draft a Richard Sherman and an Earl Thomas and acquire a Marshawn Lynch and have that kind of strength around your roster so that in theory, a rookie quarterback like Wilson was in 2012, I guess, can come in and step right in and play and not have his inexperience hurt the team too badly. Secondly, You've got to find a guy who's as good as Russell Wilson in the, in the third, third round, round. Yeah, which happens almost never. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't have the, the, the issue of paying Bradford what the Eagles presumably would have to pay him to keep him here doesn't bother me at all. I think, Especially if you're only paying it for one year. And that's right. why this franchise thing doesn't scare me the way it apparently scares the Eagles. Your commitment is only for a year. Right. You know, there were some lingering questions at the end of this season about his health, you know, whether he could play 16 games. There is a new offense, a new coach. Maybe you do want to kind of take him for a test drive. Maybe you don't want to commit to four or five years worth of guaranteed money. And that is a danger at that position. Mm -hmm. You can, you know, declare your undying... uh, uh, you can you can die on the hill of Blaine Gabbard or something, right. you know. Well, uh, look at the teams like the Ravens have done that with Joe Flacco. Right. The Giants did it with Eli Manning. Now, the the caveat with those two teams is they they literally did it in each situation after having won the Super Bowl. Yeah. So the Which idea is you kind of have to do it then. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And the Eagles, obviously, as everybody knows, have not have not won a Super Bowl. Are dying to win a Super Bowl. Their fans are dying to win a Super Bowl. There's this incredible amount of pressure on them. So the idea that you're going to commit to Bradford to that level um, without having gotten close to a championship makes people nervous. I, I personally would not have as big an issue with it because you, you can still go, as we mentioned before, you can still go out and draft guys. You can still find somebody and you can structure right. a contract in a way that it isn't debilitating to maybe say goodbye to Sam Bradford after a year or two, two years. Yes. And if you draft somebody this year... It may take him that long to develop. You know, you're not going to plug him Probably in right will. away. Yeah, yeah, you're not going to plug him in right away. John, you look talkerish, as Richie Ashburn might say. Not on this one, no. Okay. Um, so yeah, so I mean, it's going to be fascinating. I'm really curious. I know Les Les is heading to Indianapolis for next week's combine, which is kind of like the the uh, Moose Lodge convention of yes. <laughs> the NFL every year. Um, and Howie Roseman's going to talk there, and Doug Peterson's going to talk there, and kind of everyone hopes kind of demystify everyone as to what the Eagles' plans are. Can I, can I add one other thing to the list of people who will be talking, which I think is the, more than anything else, the reason why people will be paying attention? Chip Kelly will Chip be Kelly talking. will, yeah, well, presumably. He didn't talk. He doesn't have to. He doesn't I mean, have well, to. He doesn't have to. Right. But the 49ers probably would want him to as their new coach. Uh, 
But it is not a requirement that you talk at the Combine. It's just something teams do. I'm sure he'll be thrilled to see you. He will be, I'm sure. Les was the one guy who, in all of Chip's press conferences, always got the first-name treatment. That is, that is like, for a sports writer— that's that's akin to getting Marriott Platinum status. Is when is when you get your name used in a post game or pre practice press conference. Um, for some reason, sports. I don't know if you found this too. Like sports writers love that when yeah. when they get their name used. Like oh, coach knows who I am. I never. You know? I'm not saying understood. it's you specifically, but generally I mean, speaking, I, I I think he thought because I was. An older guy with white hair, I think he figured out who I was very quickly. Mm -hmm. And I, he always knew, okay, I can say less and not be wrong. <laughs> uh, but I don't know what that was all about. You're right, though. It is a, I remember when uh, Wayne Gretzky was, mm -hmm. was still playing hockey. He did that as sort of a trick in interviews. If you had a one-on-one -on -one interview with Wayne Gretzky, he would have the PR person or whoever mm -hmm. make sure that he knew your name and every question would begin with, well, Les, I think such and such. And yeah, people were, the guys that he would talk to were very impressed with that. Mm -hmm. You know, To me, it was kind of a, a rhetorical device. Yeah. But, but it speaks but to yeah. the insecurity of the people. <laughs> in sure, it does. Yes, yes, it does. <laughs> yes. Who, uh, does. Who, ooh. Right. Wayne Gretzky knows my yeah. name. He yes. took the time to learn my name. Oh my gosh. Well, let's, that's actually a good segue because let's move on to something that we don't discuss ever, ever, ever. on this podcast because Murph, I think, has watched one NHL game in wrote his life. Wrote a column off Flyers. He did. He wrote about RJ Umberger. It was a very good column. Um, but the Flyers have become, you know, an interesting topic both in the city and kind of in the NHL community as a whole within the last week or two, because they have a defenseman named Radko Gudas, who they traded for last year from the Tampa Bay Lightning, who seems committed to um, inflicting a borderline to dirty check or slash or hit on at least one opponent in every single game. And it's gotten to the point now where um, it's become an issue in the NHL in that you know people who cover the league and around the league are kind of starting to roll their eyes at Gudas and the Flyers and asking, what are the Flyers going to do about this guy, if anything? What are the Flyers going to do about a guy who hits people up, down, and left, right? Well, sounds familiar. it's a relevant question because <laughs> part of the pretext for um, Ron Hextall becoming the general manager and bringing in Dave Hextall was this idea of, drumroll please, culture change. The oh, idea God. that they were going to start doing oh, God, things no. a little bit differently. And Gudas, and they, have. and they have for the most part. But Gudas seems to me a total throwback to the way the Flyers used to be. Um, Les, you covered the Flyers for a long time before you mm -hmm. moved on to cover the Eagles. I'm curious, kind of, as your, you know, your perspective on this from a distance. Um, you know, do, do you watch this guy and go, I covered a half a dozen to a dozen guys like that in the in the late '80s and the early '90s. Or do you just kind of go like, ah, eh, what are you going to do? It's one guy, no big deal, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I, I kind of mentioned this in our uh, Broadview uh, video, if, if, but I'm sure there are a lot of people who haven't seen that priceless piece of uh, I would I would hope they have by the time the show gets up. Uh, <laughs> see about that. But when I see a guy like that, I, I, I'm uncomfortable because if he's on a team that I'm covering, mm -hmm. because there's pressure on you from the fans and – from the locker room a little bit to sort of make excuses for this guy and point out that he's not a bad person and that he, you know, likes puppies and he does charity work and so on. I don't, I never, the guy that, that I was, that I covered that was like, that was Ulf Samuelson, who was the nicest guy in the world, 
really smart player, articulate, uh, very effective player, uh, but was incredibly dirty and would Mm -hmm. try to end people's careers. I never liked that. I never thought that had a place in the game. I didn't like it when he played for the Penguins or the Rangers. I didn't like it when he played for the Flyers. And the rationale was always that he was that he would dish it out, but he was willing to take it. If anybody wanted to make a dirty hit on him, that he wouldn't, you know, make any fuss or, you know, pretend to be injured or that, that, that didn't go very far with me. I, mm. I don't think that's what the game is about. Uh, there are a lot of reasons why that, you know, skilled position players are often more vulnerable than a guy mm-hmm. like Ulf Samuelson or, Rat, or, or Radko Gudis would be. Uh, I just don't, uh, I'm not into that. I don't think there's a place for it. We're not talking about fighting. We're not talking about physical play. We're talking about dirty hits right. that inflict injury. Yeah. And no, I, mean, I, 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 I don't see a need for that. I don't see a need for it in football. You know, it happens in football too. They're trying to take it out of the game. You Good see a guy like Vontaze Burfick. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You see a guy like Vontaze Burfick. I'm right. sure if you're covering Vontaze Burfick for the Cincinnati Inquirer, there's a lot of. You know, well, Vontae's, you know, he's, he's battled a lot of things in his life, and he's a good guy, and I don't care. Yeah. I, get him out. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. There was a, uh, I was listening to a, um, another podcast, a discussion on ESPN that involved um, a guy named Will Kane, who's kind of a professional talker. He'd been on CNN and is now on ESPN, and uh, former Inquirer writer Kate Fagan, who's now mm-hmm. um, doing very well at multimedia ESPN. Multimedia star. Multimedia star. And they were discussing um, the Cam Newton um, post-game situation. Yes. And that's not nearly as severe and serious from a, you know, physical standpoint or anything like that than a dirty hit in hockey or in football. But Will Kane made a good point. He said, you know, we, we spend a lot of time nowadays in sports media and sports coverage focused on an athlete's authenticity, that we care mm-hmm. a lot about whether he or she is authentic with right. us. And his point was, and I, I tended to agree with him, was that too often... By being authentic and by by an athlete being authentic and then us in the media and the public being desirous that he or she be authentic, we excuse just doing his doing the wrong thing. Like, you, yeah. you know, the optimum thing you want is for a guy to be authentic and to also, you know, be good in what he does yes. and kind of righteous in what he does. Yeah. You know, and, and his con- the context yeah, for that was... Authentic ugliness doesn't get you. Yeah, too, exactly. Yeah. His, his point was, you know... Yeah, Cam Newton is being authentic when he when he handles losing poorly, but that doesn't mean we should praise him for being authentic. Right. It means that right. he should handle losing better, better and he should learn how to handle losing better. And I think to bring this full circle, you know, the Flyers and their teammate, the guys on the the roster can make any kind of excuse they want for Radko Gudas, but look up and down that roster for a second. There are implications to what Gudas is doing on the ice. The Flyers only have so many guys on that roster who they can afford to lose and still mm-hmm. remain a competitive team. Such as they are for the rest of the season. Right. Already. They've already lost Sean Couturier to an injury, and they are terrible. They've been terrible without him. Shane Gostaspier, Claude Giroux, Jake Voracek, Wayne Simmons. That's about it. Can I stop you on Simmons yeah. for a second? Because in thinking about Gudas and the impact on his let team. Me just, let let me just make this one point. Yeah. The point being that if Gudas continues to do this and inflict these kind of hits and engender the kind of outrage He's courting retaliation. Yeah, and, and it won't be against Radko And it ain't going to be against yeah. Radko Gudas. It's right. going to be against a player who is far more important both to the Flyers in the here and now and in their long-term future. 
Go ahead, John. Gudas hits somebody, he gets penalized. Guy from the Rangers, the Bruins, or whoever goes and hits uh, Gostaspe here. Simmons goes over and hits the guy. Simmons gets a five-minute major and who knows what more, and the Flyers are screwed twice over. That's what, if I'm the other Flyers teammates, I'm going him saying stop it because not only are you going to get us hit, you're going to get us the rest of us in trouble with the refs. Yeah, well, and, and that's a that's an image problem that, for, to a large degree, has been self-inflicted by the Flyers over right. the years, and one that they are combating now. I mean, let's face it: if Rico Gudas was on the Columbus Blue Jackets, this story probably wouldn't have the kind of legs right. that it has now. But when you know, there's an episode of The Simpsons where a character goes down into hell, and one of the characters he meets in hell is the 1974 Philadelphia Flyers. I mean, that's that you're playing into this stereotype. And, and, and I keep if Judas was around. in Winnipeg or someplace like that, we really wouldn't be hearing about it because nobody pays attention to it. Right, right. That's exactly right. So I'm also curious, Les, as to your your view on um, where the Flyers are now and where they're headed. Um, to me, it would not be the worst thing in the world if they missed the playoffs this season. I, I didn't go into the year mm-hmm. expecting them to make the playoffs. If they do, great. Okay, you get the AC, maybe get bounced by um, the Capitals or something in the first round because I don't think they have you know enough on their roster f- to to have the kind of staying power that it would take to mount a, a deep playoff run. But your thoughts about what Hextall has done and kind of building for the future and kind of the contrast with what you covered, you know, with this team. Yeah, it is a contrast. Uh, when I covered the Flyers, Ed Snyder was a very visible presence almost daily. And there was always, they were always trying to win right then, mm-hmm. even if they weren't in any real position to win right then. There was never any sense of the longer view. And yeah. I think they have that now. And I think they have some prospects who, you know, they're not fooling themselves. It's, it's not like the Sixers where you're not really sure that, they're, that the pieces fit together or that there's any longer view possible. Mm-hmm. Um, they need a few things. They, they're going to need more scoring eventually. Yeah. And they're going to ho- have to hope that the goaltending holds up for another two or three years until they're really good, which is a bit dicey. Mm-hmm. You know, if, they, if you could have micromanaged this a little more, you know, optimally, the goalie would be 24. Now. Right, yeah. <laughs> but he isn't, you know. But, but yeah, I think they're, they're doing all the right things. I, I've said before to you, Mike, I have, from having covered him as a player, I have tremendous respect for Ron Hextall. People know him as a madman, but I always knew him as a very sincere, genuine person who was smart, who never shirked responsibility mm-hmm. for anything, who really took blame even when it wasn't his fault mm-hmm. um a, a stand-up guy yeah. and uh he went to to work for the king's organization very successful probably the yeah the showcase operation in the nhl right now um i think he brought them a lot in, of that them in back. the blackhawks i'd say yeah 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 them in the blackhawks yeah that's a very good point um God, the Blackhawks uh, last night what was it seven to two or uh-huh. something like that. So, or yeah. the Leafs, yeah, yeah. It's that that that, um, that organization is just a machine. But that's yeah. a, that, they're an interesting case study to me. I, I made this point a couple of years ago, right when the Flyers um, fired Peter Laviolette and hired Craig Berube. The Blackhawks, I mean, have been a dominant franchise now for the you know close to a decade almost. Mm-hmm. I mean, they won they, in '09. They they got back to the playoffs. Uh, after a long drought, 2010, obviously, they beat the Flyers in the finals to win the, the first of three cups that they've won over that period. 
Before that, they missed the playoffs nine out of 10 years. And they were literally a non-factor in the Chicago market. Couldn't watch them on TV for Couldn't all- watch almost them on-, on purpose. Yeah, yeah. almost on yeah. purpose. But the, the benefit of that, the upshot of that, was that that period kind of erased any sense of confining Freshman. tradition yeah. to the Blackhawks. Like, it no longer meant anything to be a Blackhawks player. Like, that there yeah. was some kind of, of standard or you had to live up to or culture you had to fit into. They could totally start fresh with everything. If, if they had been a team based on toughness or goaltending right. before that, it didn't matter because now we've got Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taves and Duncan Keith, and we're going to be built around speed and skill and puck possession and all these things. And our fan base is gone, so it really nobody remembers the old yeah. days anyway. You know, I think the Flyers could do that. I really think it's overblown I, I agree uh, how much the this. fans yes. care. You know, it's been 40 years. Yeah. A lot of those fans are dead. You know, it's, it's sad to say, but it's not. Most people who follow the Flyers now don't have any real memory of that. They've heard about it. They've seen the blurry video clips. They've heard Gene Hart yell, you know, the Flyers win the Stanley right. Cup. But that I don't think people are that invested in the Flyers image anymore. I really don't. And I, I didn't think they were 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I really think the Flyers are pretty free to do whatever. I think if they win, people aren't gonna. I agree. Yeah. I don't. I, I think that's exactly. I haven't even heard anybody, you know, say write a column or say on talk radio, Josh, the the Flyers are winning the wrong way. They're not beating people <laughs> up enough. You know that. Yeah. That's from at least twenty years. Ago. Yeah. I just wonder if it if it manifested itself in their decision making from a franchise standpoint for a long period yeah, of time. Yeah, it did. You know, d- it did. is this does this kind of guy like. You know, and we're going back. Well, I know away. Bob Clark Bob certainly Clark, had very exactly. strong ideas right. about when, what a like we, we will we will be. we will draft yeah. with the number four overall pick in 1990, Mike Ricci instead right. of Yaramir Yager. Well, there, there was Ricci a whole the, there was a very complicated. We could talk for a long time about this, and it wouldn't be very interesting. But there's a whole thing there. I, I don't know if you remember, but Ed Snyder and the Snyder family at that time was very involved in the persecution mm-hmm. of Soviet Jewry. Yes. And that was something very personal to him. Yes. And the Flyers, as a moral point, would not draft a Russian player. Hmm. You know, and it, it was a valid moral point in 1988. Right. You know. Yeah. The but the Berlin Wall fell, and things changed very quickly, and the Flyers were not in position because they had not only not drafted these players, they had adamantly opposed the league getting involved with this, these right. players. It took them a long time to sort this out, and they didn't have the right kind of scouting in place, and when they did have the right kind of scouting in place, the people making the decisions were still not inclined to you know, you know, that's, that's really pull the trigger. Yeah, that's really interesting because you would think, I mean, that, that seems almost counterintuitive to me because... In the late 80s and even into the yeah. early 90s, you had incredibly talented players who were defecting from yeah, the but Soviet it, Union. You couldn't tell. Until 1990 yeah. or 91, you didn't know when you were going to get them. Okay. Somebody Fair. had to put them in the trunk of a car and <laughs> drive over, literally, yeah. drive over a border to get them free you know, of, right. of their federation. And that was a complicated mess. And... You know, teams just got lucky. They they would draft Russian stars in the sixth round, thinking, "Well, if he ever if he makes it over, hey, right, if he yeah. ever shows up, well, <laughs> and that happened. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it happened with Pavel Bure, I right. believe. That's uh, right. You know, it, 
the Flyers just, you know, they were slow on the trigger and they didn't embrace that. They were still very much into being a tough team in those days. And it was, uh, it, it really set them back quite a ways. Mm-hmm. It, it set them back horribly. And, uh, you know, they're just now, I think, sort of beginning to to emerge from that. But they also, they've had some moments. In 2004, they could have won the Stanley Cup. Yeah, I remember know. that I mean, season yeah. very well. Yeah. And they were, that team was, even though it was all Americans and Canadians, that right. team was pretty entertaining to watch. Yeah, and they that team ran into bad luck because yeah. they had several injured defensemen you know they they were right. at the they they were I mean Ken Hitchcock you know rang every drop yep. out of that group as he could it was a veteran team Ronick, Amonti, Recchi, Leclerc, Primo, Primo. Yeah. you know all those guys it had a a a heavy European element among its defensemen you know yeah. um, Danny Markov, Alexei Shamnov a forward right. had a terrific playoff for them that year um, wasn't Kapanen on that team? Kapanen was, was on that team, yeah. yeah. You know, uh, Matthias Teamander was a defenseman on yeah. that team. That you're right. I mean, that was that was about as that was probably the best team itself that they've had. You know, maybe since the mid '80s. Right. I think even better than the '90 teams that with Lindros and Leclerc. I, I just what you're talking about, Hextel. I remember thinking when they made him the GM. Okay, this is it. They're really legitimately changing their philosophy now and i i i didn't expect it i mean obviously hextall had the ties here (laughs) right you know but i just remember thinking like i was surprised when they drafted james van reemsdyke because Mm. i always thought he was a much more skilled player than was ever going to fit with the historical philosophy of the organization well it turned out they thought he didn't fit right you know and but now i look at Kanetsky, Sandheim, mm-hmm. the guys who are coming, who are really, really mm-hmm. good. Yeah. And most of the, I'll call them hockey bloggers. I don't mean that as a derogatory way, but the, the mm-hmm. people out there who write the various independent blogs, who a lot of whom are close to my age, and I'm mm-hmm. 32, they're all watching those guys. Yeah. As much as they are watching right. the senior team right now. Yeah. And I, I of the, of the Phillies, the Flyers and the Sixers, which are the three teams in town and the three sports where you build off prospects instead of just going out and right. signing guys who are on for two or three years. I think the Flyers have by far the highest ceiling right now. Well, it's you raise an interesting question, which is something I wanted to get to with Les, and, and it's something that is more of a macro look at, at the city and its four pro franchises, which is, you know, I, I do think, and, and it's particularly cu- acute with respect to the Sixers, I do feel like there's this kind of divide in the region about where each of the four teams are headed, kind of generally yeah. speaking, in their plans. Um, you know, on and this is a, a very broad generalization, but on the one hand, you have... It's what we do. Go yeah, ahead. You have people who would argue that a sports franchise should do everything it can to win now. Um, that, that, you know, what the Sixers have done with the tanking uh, and the accumulation of draft picks and, and young players... Um, is wrong. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. And even if it did work, it's the wrong way to go about doing things. Um, you know, the the Flyers. Uh, you know, they're wh- why bother taking this step back? It's it's you know they've always gone for it, and that's what made them great. And then you have the flip side of that, which is the Phillies kind of needed a clean house. You know, of all their veteran guys for a long time. Um, you know, the Flyers. I would argue needed to do the same for a while. I think Leshy just basically said the same thing. And I would argue that the Sixers, um, you know, 
are doing the logical thing uh, rather than kind of beat their head against the wall and, and trying to win a championship and not really have any chance, having any chance because of the way the NBA is set up. Let's leave the Eagles aside for a second because, I, and maybe you disagree with me on this. I do think the NFL is one is the one league where you can make a one year turnaround. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. really quickly. Yeah, there's never any tanking in the NFL. You know, yeah, I agree. Um, so I, you know, I with that backdrop, I mean, do you look at each of the three teams individually and say? Well, I like what the Flyers are doing, but I have a bigger problem with the Sixers or and the Phillies are somewhere in between. How do you kind of come down on that question? I have a bigger problem with the Sixers, and I think a lot of people do. I think the Hinkyites are kind of in uh, full retreat right now. Um, it just, you, you're three years into this, and you don't know what you have. And it sure looks like the two pieces that, you've, that you know you have don't fit together mm-hmm. in any way, shape, or form. And... And it's not clear. Dick Girardi wrote a very good piece about this the other day. Yeah, how this next draft is going to shake out, whether you're going to get a chance to draft Simmons. You know, it's you could still be left next summer without much to show for all these years of 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 trying not to win. And I really think the NBA, the Sixers are the only franchise in town that could do something like this and get away with it because their attendance was never that strong. And there weren't people weren't that invested in them. I don't think if you're the Flyers, you can go through a three-year, you know, intentionally trying not mm-hmm. to win games uh, stretch. Uh, you sell, you know, what fifteen, sixteen thousand season tickets every year to people who have to write that check, and and don't aren't up for that, you know. And certainly the Eagles could never do that. No. Uh, and the Phillies. You know their their attendance has suffered quite a bit, and it mm-hmm. will probably suffer more as they as they go through this process, uh, unless they're able to market the future as as something you know people can really grab hold of. Uh, but people have to see progress, I think, and have to see an end game and a you know an idea of what's going on. You can't just sell them on okay. At some point, we're gonna all the all this stuff is gonna fall on our lap, and we're gonna be good. Uh, since Jerry Colangelo came onto the Sixers uh, scene, you've seen a lot of cracks in what we were told. You know, it, it's one of the reasons he's here. It seems to be that the Sixers have a problem that even if they get reasonably good, agents aren't going to have their players sign with this team. Well, I think you know? that's the number one reason. I think that's why Colangelo yes. was brought in. Yeah, um, so, you know, and this was something that wasn't being talked about before Colangelo arrived. Well, Keith Pompey had been writing it before. But Um, it wasn't, it didn't dominate the the discussion. You know, there's a lot of problems with this this process that hmm. the Eagles, that the Fly, uh, that the Sixers, (laughs) whichever team it is. I'm a Hinkyite. Yeah. And I'm not a Sixers fan, but I am a Hinkyite. And the reason why is that I believe, and I've believed for a long time, that the NBA is fundamentally broken. Yeah, it is. There's a lot of stars. They get huge TV ratings when the Cavaliers play the Warriors or the Spurs or whatever it is. But the primary incentive in the NBA is to lose games to reduce randomness. Right. It's not to win champions. You either draft a player with the number one or the number two, whatever his pick, that automatically makes you a championship contender, or you're losing all the time to try to get the best lottery pick. Mm-hmm. But and that's not the it's, Warriors. It's it, well, the Warriors first of all did tank in they, they, they were, were a bad team. They were a time. terrible team. The other thing, perhaps not intentionally. 
Well, for the second half of one year, they were for at yeah. least they they were like three or four games under five hundred and traded away everybody, um, and they were in the lottery for a, you know several consecutive seasons. I think I think John's point about minimizing randomness is good, and the Warriors are a good example of that. The year they drafted Steph Curry, for instance, they got they had the seventh overall pick that year. Mm-hmm. The Minnesota Timberwolves had the fifth and the sixth overall picks. The Timberwolves took point guards with both picks and didn't take Steph Curry with either one. They took Johnny Flynn from Syracuse and they took Ricky Rubio who, you know, from from Europe. So, and now he's almost uh, ready to be the Republican nominee. <laughs> <laughs> Which would be okay with me. He's the, you know, get the, get Trump the hell out of here, but that's a discussion for a different day. Less and I I know you too where you come down in the political spectrum and I would be fighting you fighting with you guys like cats and dogs, but um the point is that that, that that in and of itself, the chance just to draft Curry was a hugely a hugely random piece of luck that they even got oh, the yeah. opportunity yeah. to get him. Then, I don't know if you guys have read um, the latest issue of ESPN, the magazine, there's a big story in there about Curry's ankles and how badly injured his ankles were the first two or three years he played in the NBA to the point where there was a question of whether his career would be able to go. Like Grant Hill. Like Grant Hill. Um, and he underwent a surgery, and it, it stabilized the ankle, the, his ankles, and it allowed him to train better and become and be more cognizant of taking care of his body, and it started him on the path to becoming the player he is now. Um, you can't know that. I mean, right. those are things you can't know. And and to, to get to your heart, of, the, the heart of what you said, Les, about the, the Hinkyites in retreat, here, here's the, the, the one thing, though. They could have, they may not, they could have as they the Sixers could have as many as four first round picks in this year's draft. I'm not saying they're going to, saying they could have that many. You have Embiid coming, presumably coming back. Whatever the who knows what he's going to be. He may not yep. be anything. You have Dario Saric, who they were they were willing to make a trade to bring over, um, and he's coming over next season. Whatever the the team, the franchise was always poised to stop tanking after this offseason anyway. And Jerry Colangelo had nothing to do with any right. of those moves. And if they get right. the number one pick, everybody will say that Colangelo brought the good luck they got them the number one yeah, pick. Yeah, I'm, but, a, I'm a hinkyite because he's willing, not verbally in front of a microphone, but by what he has done, he has called out the NBA for what it is. And the owners of the GMs or whatever it was had the ability to change the draft lottery and they didn't pass it because they realized, hey, we might want to do this Two. ourselves sometimes. I grew up a, a Washington Bullets slash Wizards, not even a fan because they were dreck for the first 20 years of my life. and they were, But they were just the right kind of dreck yeah. where for 15 years they weren't bad enough to get the number one pick. The first time they did, they took Kwame Brown and blew it. Right. The second time they took John Wall and only when they took John Wall and then were bad enough again to get Bradley Beal. Did they start becoming a team that could even make the playoffs? Yeah. So, I I would get rid of the draft lottery. I would too. I, I would, would I, have it. I would have it be the way the NFL does it because I honestly believe, and I was talking to Keith about this a couple of days ago, and he was kind of intrigued by it. I honestly believe if you get rid of the draft lottery, teams will still tank, but they'll tank for less time, hmm. and they'll, they'll because they'll they can their, be guaranteed the first or second. Right. right. They'll get yeah. their guy, and then they'll go on from there. Yeah. You know, that's I, I agree. I, I, that, I hadn't thought about that, but I think that's an interesting point. Clearly, you're not, by having the lottery, you're not keeping teams from tanking. 
and you're not really addressing how you get better, right. you know, in any coherent way. Uh, that I like that idea a lot. Yeah, I do too. And it's, I mean, it is a problem, and I and, and I've written that before and, and agree. I, there there are things that Hinky has gotten wrong. Like I think the if you're going to draft, if you're going to build a team this way, you better have a support structure in place to make the environment yes. for these young yes. guys as conducive to growth and maturation as yeah, possible. Yeah, you're not playing a board game. Right, and they yeah. clearly failed in that regard with respect to Julia Okafor, um, you know, based on the incidents that happened last fall. Be that as it may, that's almost a separate issue from the strategy of what they're trying to do to, to accrue talent and build from there. So, um, I mean, personally, I think it's interesting. Like, I, I, I think the what the Sixers are doing is interesting. I think what the Flyers have done is interesting. I don't know that it's going to work, um, but... And I'll tell you, the Sixers... I sit there looking at you know the big boards every day with all of who's what the people on Philly.com are reading. For as much as everybody hates it, they're the second most talked about team in the city right now. Based on Eagles. really? Yeah. Oh yeah. Because Interesting. It caused such a stir. Interesting. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, now that spring training is is about to begin, we'll uh, we'll, we'll see, see how that lasts. You know, because right. the Phillies you know needed a fresh start, and now they'll become at least a little bit and, more intriguing I, as I well. Think, I think the fan base realized. Those guys were getting old. They were making a lot of money. It was time to clear the place out mm-hmm. and start over. Matt Clintack, what he's done so far as the GM, as, as we've talked about on here and as I've talked about with Dave, has done some pretty smart things. I know people like to make fun of the fact that he hired a guy from YouTube, but I think he's got some pretty smart people in the organization. And I look at you know, not being sure whether the Mets are – either going to spend their way into oblivion or have the Cespedes deal be a one-time thing. Hmm. I look at the Nationals that cannot get out of their own way and are just full of hubris and are going to collapse because of it. And I think there's legit, not for this year to be optimistic about the Phillies, but certainly to see the direction they're going in yeah. and think they're going the right way. We'll see. We'll have to have Les back on next year. That'd be great. To, uh, if not sooner, to... Uh, yeah, I might discuss the progress. One, yeah. I, I want to throw one more question out there before we, we do have a couple of minutes sure. left. Mike and I are both college basketball people, and mm-hmm. we never get to talk about it, in part because Dave, Dave, in addition to hockey, doesn't want to talk about college basketball. He doesn't want to talk about college sports, period. We, we are talking, we are recording this show a few hours before the game of the season in local college yes. basketball, such as it matters, number one ranked Villanova at Temple. We're not going to go too far down the road of that game specifically because probably by the time you're listening to this, it might be Thursday morning, so the game will have already happened. But, the, the, Mike, you and I have discussed on a number of occasions why it is that, that college basketball has fallen out of favor in Philadelphia and the way that it has. The attendances are down across the city. Um, there's many different factors in it as to why people don't care, other than the obvious of the Eagles just obliterating <laughs> everything in their sights. Yeah. And I, I want to I throw this out there because we have Temple Villanova mm-hmm. and because, as, as Frank Fitzpatrick wrote very eloquently that earlier this week in the Inquirer, it has become the biggest game on the calendar because they are the two most powerful schools in the city. I just I, I think that Temple is the bell cow in terms of interest in college basketball in the city and college sports generally, as we saw with football when they got good mm-hmm. and sold the link out for Notre Dame and Penn State. And I think that even, even though Villanova can sell out the Wells Fargo Center when they play Georgetown or when they play St. Mm-hmm. John's and really make a big effort to pack the house, 
I think Temple's the bell cow ultimately in terms of broad interest in the city. They've got the big alumni base, obviously. But one of the reasons why the interest isn't there, and you'll love this, because I think you and I will both agree on it, they left the A-10 and went to a football conference, which got South Florida, Central Florida, Tulane, East Carolina. People care about Connecticut and Memphis. Maybe they care about SMU when they're good. Houston gets good every once in a while. But the rest of those schools, nobody cares about in the way they did UMass, Xavier, I think when that, they were playing the big five schools as conference games, et cetera. I think that's part of it. I think there's a couple things at play. One, one that's been in play for a long time um, and another that is a more recent development. Unless you've lived in the area long enough, you can, you can certainly see, even though you're a North Carolina native. A couple of things. Number one, I say this as a LaSalle alumnus and somebody who grew up loving the Big Five. I think Philadelphia in general is overrated as a college basketball town because there's never been the kind of collective interest in one particular program yeah. um, that would suggest it's too divided, it's too divided. Yeah. right? With the exception maybe of the 04 St. Joe's team that went unbeaten and almost made it to the Final Four because they were cuddly and the underdog and all that sort of thing. And they had some, and, and they had, this is another thing I think. They had legitimate NBA talent on this team, which hasn't been the case for right. the big five schools right. in a while. Right, right. If Villanova makes a deep run, Temple people are not following it closely. If LaSalle gets to the Sweet 16 once in a century, nobody else is following that. I think that's always been in play. The other part that I think that doesn't get talked about at all is that we are a couple generations removed now from families in the suburbs of, of Philadelphia being from the actual city of Philadelphia. Yeah, I grew up in Montgomery yeah. County. Part of the reason, the reason why I was a huge Big Five fan, and particularly a LaSalle fan, was because both of my parents grew up in Philadelphia. One of them in Logan, one of them in Olney. My dad was a LaSalle alum. Okay, now my kids, I'm not, I may be from Philadelphia. I didn't grow up in Philadelphia. I grew up just outside it. So the, my two sons are now another step removed from going That's down to the palestra point. and going and I, down to the palestra all the time and all that kind of and stuff. And I would add that a lot of kids that grow up in the suburbs today don't tend to go to the Philadelphia schools. Right. You know, it, it's just a tradition that sort of— uh, Right. Like Temple, for instance, you used, John, you used Temple as an example. Well, Temple is a public institution that's going to draw kids from a wider range— Look at enrollment in the Catholic archdiocese and schools in in Philadelphia. It's been dropping well, for years. In legitimate financial trouble as an institution, right? But I'm talking about the high yeah. schools, the, the ones oh, that I would see, send, yeah, yeah. The, the one, the schools that would send kids without blinking to LaSalle, St. Joe's, even right. Villanova. There aren't as many of those kids anymore. So, you know, I think that plays into it too. It's it's we've gotten more. I don't know if diverse is the word, but. We've kind of moved away. The world's away. gotten bigger. And I'll, yeah, and I'll, the world's I'll, gotten bigger. I'll add you talk about diversity. The school that I cover, and as folks know, the school that I went to mm -hmm. is Penn. I go to, I go get in the door of the palestra every single time I possibly can. It's my, it's my favorite sporting venue in the country, never mind in Philadelphia. Um, they used to have, in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s, a rabid fan base. Yeah. Because much of their enrollment was from the was from the Philly area, North Jersey, and D.C. They're now so global as a student body, right? Oh, and yeah. And the institution yeah, yeah. has not followed that up by convincing the kids as to why they should go to basketball games. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's interesting. I mean, Les, you grew up in a in a basketball hotbed yes. area. I mean, it, do you see the difference? I guess in what 
Yeah, what college, Philadelphia is and has become. Philly's a pro sports town. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. I moved up here in 83, and it's been a pro sports town the whole time I've been here. There was a lot of excitement when Temple had, like, Mark Macon. Yeah. And, you know, but and when Villanova won the championship in 85 with, with those guys. But, yeah, this is a pro sports town. Charlotte has always been a, a college sports mm-hmm. town. Even though none of those colleges that people right. followed there, was yeah. in Charlotte, was it within two hours of Charlotte? And it's interesting to see it as more and more outsiders move in. It becomes more of a pro sports. Yeah, town. it's like mini Atlanta, I guess. It's, yeah. it's known more for the Panthers now than it is right. for having the ACC tournament. And, and yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I, I look. I love college basketball. This to me, we're hitting my favorite time of the year. You're gonna have spring training. You're gonna have. The NHL and NBA playoffs getting closer when the Flyers and Sixers are You're good. You're going to have the second round of the NCAA tournament right. and then Villanova's season's well, over. Be, and, you know, if, it, there's so yeah. much going on. See, I and, made a joke there. No yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, I'll tell you I'll, it, it's, I, I, having grown up in D.C., having watched a lot of Maryland basketball over the years, I'm salivating at the possibility of Villanova and Maryland playing each other at the Wells Fargo Center for a place in the Final Four. That'd be pretty great. That'd be pretty great. Um lot of history in those two programs that'd be that'd be a sight to see so anyway we can continue that next week um, if murphy is back if, if murphy is be. back he might be uh sunning himself uh near the gulf of mexico somewhere yes. so um les thanks for coming in stepping in we it's appreciate fun, it very much thanks. good to be here um and we'll talk to you all next week